as we look at sort of the big idea of this passage is orderly worship, orderly worship as we gather together as believers. <clears throat> I did a quick Google search this week on the most controversial topics that the Bible addresses. Two of the top five are in this one short passage this morning. I did think we could do an eight-week mini-series on these, on the, the, the headline came up, top eight most controversial uh, issues that the Bible addresses. I thought we could do a mini-series. I could give Monty four. Uh, I could give Phil two of them since I drew the short straw this morning having two in one passage. So you can feel sorry for me a little bit. So in light of that, Monty just, he's feeling a lot of empathy this morning. Not. So... Let's, uh, let's read together, starting in chapter 14, verse 26 through 40. What then, brothers, <coughs> excuse me, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So those two of those top five of the most controversial topics are tongues and women's role or participation in a gathering on Sunday morning in church with the body. So this morning, as we try to rightly divide the Word of God, I think it's important as a reminder, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, a very challenging passage in itself, we need to understand first, I think, that it has two foundational truths that are driven by one overarching reality. And I place those, uh, these thoughts in your notes. Truth number one, everything in the worship gathering, Paul's saying in chapter 14, is to be done to build up the body. Now we've seen this in verses 1 through 25, and we'll see it again today that Paul is very concerned about about the health of the church, about the strength of the health of the bride of Christ. The second truth is the public worship gathering is crucial to the process of being built up. The 
Public worship gathering is crucial to the process of the church, you are the church, being built up and to grow to maturity in Christ. It's one of the many reasons. It's not because Monty and I expect you to, which we do, but the main reason is there something that happens when you come and show up on Sunday morning that doesn't happen when you're not here. And you and I are to come ready, not only to worship, but to engage each other, to build each other up with words of edification. Now, now, how do we get ready? That's the, that's the next question I think about. There is no other way. There's no other way, or the primary way, is that you worship during the week through opening the scriptures and in prayer. Like that is priority because if you don't do that and you show up on Sunday morning, you aren't really ready. It's the whole athlete thing. We love to watch in our house because I got a little basketball player now. We watch NBA playoffs. And everything you see that happens that's glorious that an athlete does in public is because behind the scenes when no one was watching, that athlete has put thousands of hours into their craft. So their public work then becomes private. And that's the same with us when it comes to worship. D.A. Carson puts it this way, he says, the notion that you can come to church on Sunday and bend your knee in worship when in fact you have not done so during the week is a delusion. That ought to stick in our crawl and remind us that Monday through Saturday is preparatory for what happens here on Sunday morning and for your own growth. So the public gathering of the church is important to Paul. He's concerned about her. He's very protective of her. Look what he says about her in verse 26. What then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building her up, for building up the church. So Paul, in chapter 14, is addressing how we are to conduct ourselves when we are gathered together. Paul's great burden in this passage is that nothing be done in the church or by the church that would disgrace the Lord Jesus and his gospel. So, the two truths. Now we have an overarching reality that really drives those two truths. And that reality is God and his glory. Driving all that is said here in chapter 14 is God himself. The church is his and we are his and we belong to him in Christ. We exist, the scriptures tell us throughout, for his glory. God himself and the glory of his name is his number one affection. The number one affection of God is himself and his glory. Not even more so. Then you and I save sinners. One writer put it this way. It says, because we are saved from God, by God, for God, from his wrath, by his grace, for his glory. So our very reason for being, if you would, a local body is to point to God in his perfection, in his excellence, in his greatness, in his goodness, in his character. So how we do what we do when we gather together, should 
reflect who he is. And it is because of what God is like that, that Paul in some ways is so eager and so direct and so pointed to, to direct us in these verses to talk to us about what we should be like when we gather on a Sunday morning. So over the last two weeks in chapter 14, Paul has addressed the gift of tongues and prophecies together. He has told us what they are, he has told us what they are for. And if you missed the last two weeks' sermon, this sermon will make a lot more sense if you go back and watch that in context. But now this morning, he makes this transition, if you would, from explanation to just straight up practical instruction, meaning what are these two gifts, tongues and prophecy, to look like very specifically, very practically, as we gather as a local church, then as Paul often does, he adds on this role and participation of women when the church is gathered. And so, as your notes say, we have sort of three sets of guidelines about tongues, about prophecy, and the role and participation of women when the church gathers. So let's, let's jump in and tackle tongues first as Paul does. Tongues and the worship gathering. Let's read verse 27 and 28 again. <clears throat> if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most, at most three in each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Now, Paul starts here with this particular gift of tongues because it is causing the greatest difficulty in the church at Corinth. You may remember, you can go back to this in, in verses 1 through 11 in, in Corinth, Paul makes a very big deal about the superiority of tongues or prophecy, I'm sorry, over uh, tongues. And the main reason was is that Prophecy is intelligible, and the church can only be built up if what they hear is intelligible, whereas tongues or that utterance is, has an unintelligibility, and people can't be built up for what they don't understand. Now, here's what my thinking in the text. In verse 19, it says, Paul says, In church, I'd rather speak five words than ten, five words that are intelligible than 10,000 that are not intelligible. And in my mind, that sort of puts the stamp on it. They should have gotten it. But here's what Paul does in the, these texts of, of 27 and 28. He actually says there's a way that the gift of tongues can become intelligible if they have... Uh, if there's another gift being exercised, and that is the gift of interpretation. So let me illustrate for you. You know, many of you know me, know that I think, and it's probably true at some level, I may be the greatest wild turkey hunter in all of America. Huh. I have killed 221 wild turkeys in the last 32 years. So do your math, all right? Or either call them in for rookies who had no idea what they were doing and they pulled the trigger. So there's a turkey talk that goes on. So I'm going to talk turkey, okay? And 99% and, and of you in here will not know what I'm saying, all right? Hmm. It's not... <laughs> It's not good to have a hair on your turkey cock. It's, it's demon. Demons are at work. Okay. 
Now I ask the question, do I have an interpreter? <laughs> right here, I have an interpreter. Stand up, please. <laughs> Tell him what that was. Thank you very much. Give Jay a hand right there. Fly down cackle. Here's what it is. The hen is on the roost early in the morning, and she, right before she flies down, as she flies down, she hits it really hard. Da, 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 da. Ah, and then she flies down, and she's telling that old gobbler, I'm coming, big boy, I'm coming, right? So you got to have an interpreter, or you would have no idea, right, what I am saying. Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to make y'all remember because I know my audience is a little, little challenged here, right? So I'm trying. You won't ever forget that point in 1 Corinthians 14. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is listing these spiritual gifts and given by the Holy Spirit. And he says there's one particular gift in here. It's called the gift of interpretation. So concerning tongues, Paul now sets these three limits or boundaries on how tongues are to be used when believers gather on Sunday morning. And the first one is the most important one. He says, there must be an interpreter present. There must be a Jay Patton who I've trained from birth <laughs> to turkey talk, right? When tongues is spoken, otherwise there's to be no use of this gift in a public gathering. Now, one of the questions we don't really have an answer to is, how was it determined if an interpreter was present or not? For me this morning, it was determined because I knew Jay would be at the 11 o'clock service. He wasn't at the 9 o'clock service, so I didn't have an interpreter. But I knew he would be here so I could do turkey talk and he could interpret. Because here's the deal. You really do need to know, Paul is saying, if you're going to speak in an utterance or, or a tongue uh, that is not intelligible, you need to know whether there's an interpreter present or you can't stand up. Paul says, there's no interpreter, you are not to use the gift of tongues. So how do you find out if an interpreter is present? Here's the answer. I don't know. And no one else does. But it's important that you do know if you're going to speak with a tongue in a public worship gathering. The second limit he gives with tongues and as the body gathers together, if it passes the first qualification and there is an interpretation, he sets this second limit that says there can only be two or three at most during a worship service. And the third limit was they are to speak at one, one at a time, each in turn, he says. So, Jen and I are raising support. We're on staff with Campus Crusade. We're visiting this church. I believe it was in Virginia. And on a Sunday morning, the pastor invites everyone to stand up and pray. And as they did, probably 400 of the 600 people there, I looked around, began to speak in an unknown tongue. All at one time. All at the same time. They sounded crazy as a cricket in a hubcap, Right? And I didn't know what was going on. It was very confusing. Obviously, I was observing. But that would be in direct contradiction to what the Scriptures lay out concerning tongues. So, 
in Corinth, but we know, here's what we know about Corinth. There was a huge lack of discipline. There was a lack of restraint. There was a lack of maturity. And we know there was a lack of uh, humility. And in that, there would be this chaos created, this sense of ecstasy created that looked nothing like it should look. And so Paul addresses that here. And he even says in verse 3, this is not what an orderly worship looks like that actually builds up the body. He says, God is not a God of confusion and chaos. And so all these instructions point directly to order and worship. Now, I came across a story in my study this week, a conversation between a non-charismatic pastor and a well-known leader in the charismatic tradition. And I, and I won't include their names here, but they were having a good discussion on the basis of 1 Corinthians 14, 39, that says, earnestly desire prophecy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. And in this conversation, the charismatic leader asked the pastor, what would you do if someone began speaking in tongues at church? And the pastor said, I would listen, let him finish, and if there was an interpretation that corresponded with Scripture, I would have no objection to it. The pastor now asked the charismatic leader, what would you do if there was no public tongue speaking in your church for six months? And the charismatic leader responded, I'd be devastated. And the pastor immediately replied, there's the difference. You think tongue speaking is indispensable. I see it as dispensable, but not forbidden. That in itself is Paul's heart and priority as he impacts what does it look like in a church gathering, worship gathering, when this gift is exercised. Secondly, Paul addresses what does prophecy in the worship gathering look like. And again, I want to encourage you to go back and where I really unpack the definition of biblical prophecy in verses 1 through 11 or 14 a couple of weeks ago. It's going to help you here to understand everything. But Paul, again, lays out three limits, if you would, or boundaries. Look at verse 29 through 33. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So Paul here lays out three more things. In verse 29, he says, again, there's to be a limited number, two or at most three. And secondly, a second limit, it says those speaking are to exercise, I put this in my own words, self-control, humility, no hurry, listening, ready to defer, so that all may learn and be encouraged or built up. And in some ways, Paul is saying what I talked about in the previous chapter, chapter 13, love, the love chapter, as you prophesy, it is to be done in difference and in love for the body, for each other, so all can be learned and built up. And then thirdly in verse 29, Paul adds this different twist, if you would. He says the prophetic word once spoken must be weighed or examined or tested or sifted or judge to see if it is correct, to see if it corresponds with the Word of God. So when Paul says others in that verse, he's speaking of the rest of the people in the body as a prophecy is spoken. 
He's saying that all of us should weigh that. Now, we are to listen and weigh and test and sift these words that are spoken similar, I think, to Acts chapter 17, verse 11, where the Bereans were receiving the teaching of Paul and Silas. And here's how they put it. Now, these Jews received the word with all eagerness, examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So those Bereans, those Jews who come to Christ were examining the scriptures daily to see if what Paul and Silas had told them were true. Did it hold up? Did it correspond with the word of God? So there's a weight about it, if you would, such that attention is on what is being said, not on who is saying it. So as you go back, maybe listen to uh, my sermon on prophecy and unpacking the definition, you'll get that. But what Paul is doing this morning is he was reminding us, he is addressing us that prophecy is not authoritative because it is declared and delivered by a person who is fallible, a fallible channel, if you would, a fallible person. To be honest, it's just like my teaching. The Bible is authoritative. I am not. I am a fallible person. It's hard for you to believe, but I really am a fallible person, and you have to weigh both prophecy and weigh and test my teaching to see if it corresponds with the Scripture. So all teaching, all prophecy must be weighed and sifted and texted or tested. And this weighing, as it happens, will take place in our hearts. It will take place in our minds. But once in a while, what happens is, Paul's saying the leaders of the church must may need to do some public sifting, some public weighing, some public testing where they stand up to correct or, or make, bring clarity to something that is said publicly in the church in order to build the church up and not let her be led astray by incorrect doctrine or teaching. Matter of fact, one of the primary, if not the primary thing the elders of this church are responsible for is the overall health of the doctrine of this church to protect the sheep from being led astray from incorrect doctrine. So Paul lays that out clearly in prophecy in the worship gathering. Now third, <laughs> we get into the role it is a nervous laugh there. Role and participation of women in the worship gathering. All right? Let's read verses 33b through 35. <clears throat> the women should keep silent in the churches, or as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, obviously, these verses are highly disputed. And one of the main reasons should be apparent to us if we go back just a few earlier chapters. Because in chapters 11, 2 through 5, uh, chapter 11, verses 2 through 5, Paul lays out a completely flat-out contradiction to what he is saying here in chapter 14. Let's go back to that just to get an idea, okay? Chapter 11, 2 through 5. 
Paul says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies, there it is, every wife who prays or prophesies, which is totally fine, with her head uncovered dishonors his head. Her head. So Paul is saying here, in other words, as long as the woman is wearing a head covering, which at that time was cultural, it, 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 and I did that sermon too in that text. They give me all the hard ones, okay? Uh, where <laughs> Monty has no empathy for me, right? Laura going to get him back one day. Um, but but it's saying that this, this, that was a sign of her femaleness, and it was also a sign that she was submitted to the created order of God, that man was created before woman. Paul's saying that woman in chapter 11 could participate in praying and prophesying publicly when the local church gathered. So is he contradicting himself? Because here he's saying women should be silent. What's up, Paul? Which is it? Has Paul lost his mind? Has Paul forgotten what he penned just a few chapters earlier and, and now he's contradicting himself? You know, I am, I do, I do laugh a little. I'm amazed and I'm humored by how some scholars quickly, when they come to these kind of texts, they, the, the energy they spend to sort of rescue Paul from himself and to recreate Paul in their image, their own image. Uh, they do that because they don't want to wrestle with the text sometimes. So the question is, is there a contradiction or is there something more here that needs to be understood? The answer is yes. There's something more here that needs to be understood. And thank goodness we don't have to look very far are very hard to find it. Here's what we need to do. We need to remember what Paul has been talking about. Read 14.29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So when Paul says in verse 34 that women should be silent, his point here in 14 is that women are not to engage or participate in any public weighing or judging or sifting or testing of the prophecy that has been given. Now, Paul gives us much more clarity on this issue of, issue of the women's role and participation in a public church gathering. And he does that as he writes to a young pastor who's establishing his own church. His name is Timothy, his Paul's protege. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul writes this to Timothy. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And he goes back to creation for his reason. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So Paul is saying that women are not to exercise any teaching which has authority over men and all public weighing or testing or sifting of prophecies would fall into that category. So Paul says the function of public weighing or discernment is not a place of where women are to engage. It is reserved really for the elders 
of the church whose primary job is to give oversight, spiritual oversight and authority to the flock to protect them from being led astray by false doctrine. So women are encouraged to weigh these things privately, though. Paul says all of us are. Women are certainly are to talk to their husbands later or even talk to the leaders of the church about what was said and why it was said and to ask questions. Women are encouraged to pray and to see if God might want them to exercise that gift of prophecy in a public gathering. But when a public teaching role is needed, Paul says based on God's design, based on God's created order, there is a line that cannot be crossed. Though a woman may pray or prophesy, she must not teach publicly or weigh prophecy publicly in a way that would assert, and here's the key word, spiritual authority over men in the church. Now, another thing Paul says in that text, he uses the phrase, did you notice, as the law also says, given reasoning for that. I love what D.A. Carson wrote. If I trust anybody in the world on this subject or any other subject, it's Dr. D.A. Carson, who was a professor of mine at Trinity and uh, is respected as much as any theologian um, in the world. And so what he does, he speaks to this phrase, as the law also says, but he also sort of sums up this whole last few verses of 33 through 35. Let me just read straight from his mouth. Here, talking about in verses 33 and 35, Paul is referring to the Old Testament scriptures when he says, as the law also says, and to specifically the creation order of Genesis 2, 20 through 24. For it is to that scripture that Paul explicitly returns to on two other occasions in the New Testament when he discusses the female roles in the public church gathering. The text from Genesis 2 does not speak of silence, but it does suggest that because man was made first and woman was made for man, some kind of pattern has been laid out or laid down regarding the roles the two play. Paul understands from this creation that a woman is to be subject to man, and in the context of the Corinthians' weighing of prophecies, such submission cannot be preserved if the women participated publicly in the weighing or testing or sifting of prophecies. And this certainly produces Paul's intent or big idea in this chapter, which is order in the church. That's a good summary, isn't it? I need all the women to shake your head. Okay, thank you. So let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that women are not as smart as men. Lord, how mercy. Any man with half a brain knows better than that. Women are brilliant, and it's certainly true in my family. Paul, but Paul instructs them to learn. He says, learn, I want you to learn. It does not mean women cannot teach the Scriptures. They are to teach the Scriptures. Matter of fact, Paul makes very uh, direct exhortation in Titus 2 for women to know the Word of God in order to give their life away to younger women to know the Word of God. So women can teach the Scriptures. It does not mean that women cannot fully participate in the worship gathering. 
They can pray. They can lead a prayer time. The only thing they can't do in all the gifts of the church is to be an elder or a teaching pastor, which means they then would, in those roles and function, would have spiritual authority over men in the church. Now, I actually believe, and our church believes, that women can be a deacon if that is defined by the original biblical definition of a deacon. The Bible calls them deaconesses. Is that how you say it? It's the female version of a male deacon. How about that? Acts chapter 6, an official office of service in caring for the needs of the church body. And, and here's the deal here. The Greek culture in Corinth was very clear that women could not speak publicly anywhere anytime in any kind of gathering. And Paul in some ways is saying here the gospel frees women from those cultural restrictions, but it does not free them in that setting to have authority, spiritual authority over men. They can have authority at work. You can have a woman boss, but spiritual authority over a man based on one fact. And that is man was created first, woman was created second from the creation account. Now, I want to challenge this, as with this teaching, it may be difficult. All teaching is for our good and for human flourishing, not our enslavement. We have to remember that when things are maybe difficult to grasp. Let me end with this little icing on the cake. I think so, we all must... All, must also remember that submission does not in any way imply any kind of inferiority. It simply means an ordering under. And the classic example of this is the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are equal in essence, yet they have a willing submission and function and role. And that's the example that we have when it comes to biblical submission. So I hope that's helpful. So, so let me say this. Let me say to all the women out there, you, I'll put it this way, this church does not exist without your service, without your leadership, without your prayers, without your walks with God. It does not exist and function as God would have it to exist. And so we applaud you. We are grateful for you. And more than anything, the elders and leaders of this church are called to tenderly shepherd you and lead you and guide you and counsel you and care for you and pray for you. And every man in this church who knows Jesus is called to do the same. This way of looking at the man and woman roles that God created to function best and for humans to flourish is called, theologically, it's called complementarism. And in that, the man has his roles to care for and love not only his wife, but women who know Christ as sisters in Christ. So we want to do that well here. And I hope you get that uh, as we uh, wrap up this morning and talk about maybe this tough passage. Let me finish with this. Uh, the last uh, part, it says the pastoral counsel and exhortation to obey. Here's how Paul wraps up his, test, his text. He says, do what I told you to do, please. He says, or was it from you that the word of God came? 
That's a rhetorical question with a little sarcasm added on. And if you like sarcasm, you like Paul, right? He's saying, or was it from you that the word of God came? The answer is no, it wasn't from you. Paul, who they really didn't respect as an apostle, who they kept pushing back on, they weren't very teachable, they didn't have big ears, they didn't have soft hearts, so they were always pushing back. Who is this Paul? Who does he think he is? Paul is saying, did you bring the word of God to yourself? (laughs) Paul said, no, I brought it to you. I'm the one that brought it to you. You're not listening. Then he says, or are you the only one in his reach? Paul says, no. The word of God is going all around the known world. He says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, if you really know Jesus and are mature, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. Comes through my mouth as a fallible man, but they are straight from God. If anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized as a spiritual person, a mature believer. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So that, and this is the big picture, that the body of Christ should be built up into the image of Christ. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we come to you and We are certainly grateful for your great care for us, that you would give us your word, that you would make things really clear for us, that we can follow hard after you. And in doing so, we could bring glory to you by what we do here on Sunday mornings and how we do it. Thank you for your word. And everyone said, amen.